European Heart Journal, Issue and a Glance. Volume 44, Issue 46. Focus Issue, Clinical Trials. By Editor-in-Chief, Professor Filippo Crea. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. Quality Standards for Artificial Intelligence-Based Studies and Clinical Trials. This focus issue on clinical trials contains the special article Five Critical Quality Criteria for Artificial Intelligence-Based Prediction Models by Florine van Gooyen and colleagues from the Utrecht University in the Netherlands. The number of artificial intelligence, or AI-based studies, is increasing exponentially. To raise the quality of clinical AI prediction modelling studies in the cardiovascular health domain and thereby improve their impact and relevance, the editors for Digital Health, Innovation and Quality Standards of the European Heart Journal propose five minimal quality criteria for AI-based prediction model development and validation studies. Complete reporting, carefully defined intended use of the model, rigorous validation, sufficient sample size and openness of data and software. Clinical trials play a key role in the progression of cardiovascular care. In a state-of-the-art review article entitled Endpoint Adjudication in Cardiovascular Clinical Trials, Mohamed Shazeb Khan and colleagues from Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina, USA, note that endpoint adjudication, or EA, is a common feature of contemporary randomized control trials, or RCTs, in cardiovascular medicine. EA refers to a process wherein a group of expert reviewers, known as the Clinical Endpoint Committee, or CEC, verify potential endpoints identified by site investigators. Events that are determined by the CEC to meet pre-specified trial definitions are then utilized for analysis. The rationale behind the use of EA is that it may lessen the potential misclassification of clinical events, thereby reducing statistical noise and bias. However, it has been questioned whether this is universally true, especially given that EA significantly increases the time, effort and resources required to conduct a trial. The authors lay out a framework to determine which trials may warrant EA and where it may be redundant. The value of EA is likely to be greater when cardiovascular trials have nuanced primary endpoints, endpoint definitions that align poorly with practice, suboptimal data completeness, greater operator variability and lack of blinding. EA may not be needed if the primary endpoint is all-cause death or all-cause hospitalisation. In contrast, EA is likely to be useful for more nuanced endpoints such as myocardial infarction, bleeding, worsening heart failure as an outpatient, unstable angina, or transient ischemic attack. A risk-based approach to adjudication can potentially allow compromise between costs and accuracy. This would involve adjudication of a small proportion of events with further adjudication carried out if inconsistencies are detected. Cardiac implantable electronic devices or CIEDs, play a key role in daily clinical practice. Intrapocket ultrasound-guided axillary vein puncture, 
or IPUS AVP, for venous access in implantation of transvenous CIED is uncommon due to lack of clinical evidence supporting this technique. In a clinical research article entitled Intrapocket Ultrasound-Guided Axillary Vein Puncture versus Cephalic Vein Cutdown for Cardiac Electronic Device Implantation, the ACCESS trial. Paul Charles and colleagues from the Hôpital de la Croix-Rouge et Hôpital Lyon-Sud in France investigated the efficacy and early complications of IPUS-AVP compared with the standard method using cephalic vein cutdown, or CVC, for CIED implantation. ACCESS was an investigator-led, interventional, randomized one-to-one ratio, monocentric, control superiority trial. A total of 200 patients undergoing CIED implantation were randomized to IPUS-AVP, N equaling 101, or CVC, N equaling 99, as a first assigned route. The primary endpoint was the success rate of insertion of all leads using the first assigned venous access technique. The secondary endpoints were time to venous access, total procedure duration, fluoroscopy time, X-ray exposure and complications. Complications were monitored during a follow-up period of three months after the procedure. IPUSAVP was significantly superior to CVC for the primary endpoint, with 100 99%, versus 86 86.9% procedural successes, P equaling 0.001. All secondary endpoints were also significantly improved in the IPUSAVP group. There was no significant difference in complication rates between groups, P equaling 0.68. The authors conclude that IPUS-AVP is superior to CVC in terms of success rate, time to venous access, procedure duration and radiation exposure. Complication rates were similar between the two groups. IPUS-AVP should be a recommended venous access technique for CIED implantation. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Michele Brignole from the Ospedale San Luca in Milan, Italy, and Jean-Claude de Haro from the Aix-Marseille Université in France. Should intrapocket ultrasound-guided axillary vein access be the recommended venous access technique for CIED implantation? The authors believe that more evidence of the superiority of intraoperative ultrasound guidance over transcutaneous ultrasound guidance is needed before this technique can be widely adopted as the first choice. Fluoro-guided axillary vein access, which is simpler, less expensive, and therefore more accessible on a large scale, although it involves additional brief exposure to X-rays, also deserves attention. In the meantime, as each technique is highly operator-dependent, it is advised that each operator be free to select the technique in which he or she feels more confident. The interest in tricuspid regurgitation, or TR, is rapidly increasing, due also to the rapid evolution of percutaneous approaches. For patients with symptomatic, severe tricuspid TR, early results of transcatheter tricuspid valve, or TV, intervention studies 
have shown significant improvements in functional status and quality of life associated with right heart reverse remodeling. In a clinical research article entitled Transfemoral Tricuspid Valve Replacement and One-Year Outcomes, the TRISEND study, Sushil Kodali and colleagues from the Columbia University Irving Medical Center point out that longer-term follow-up is needed to confirm sustained improvements in these outcomes. The prospective single-arm multicenter TRISEND study enrolled 176 patients to evaluate the safety and performance of transcatheter TV replacement in patients with greater than or equal to moderate symptomatic TR despite medical therapy. Major adverse events, reduction in TR grade and hemodynamic outcomes by echocardiography and clinical, functional and quality of life parameters are reported to one year. Enrolled patients were 71% female, mean age 79 years, 88 greater than or equal to severe TR and 75% New York Heart Association Class 3 stroke 4. TR was reduced to less than or equal to mild in 98%, P being less than 0.001, with increases in stroke volume, P being less than 0.001, and cardiac output, also P being less than 0.001. New York Heart Association Class 1 or 2 was achieved in 93%, P being less than 0.001, Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire score increased by 25.7 points, P being less than 0.001, and 6-minute walk distance increased by 56.2 metres, again P being less than 0.001. All-cause mortality was 9.1%, and 10.2% of patients were hospitalised for heart failure. The authors conclude that in an elderly, highly comorbid population with greater than or equal to moderate TR, transfemoral evoke transcatheter tricuspid valve replacement is associated with sustained TR reduction, significant increases in stroke volume and cardiac output, and high survival and low hospitalization rates, with improved clinical, functional and quality of life outcomes to one year. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Solomon Beanstalk and Greg Stone from the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, New York, USA and colleagues. The authors note that ultimately, randomized trials with long-term follow-up are needed to establish the value of percutaneous treatment of TR. Ongoing randomized trials of medical therapy versus 1. T-tier NCT 04646811, NCT 04097145, 2. Evoke, NCT 04482062, and 3. Operator choice of any CE marked transcatheter TV repair or replacement system, currently the Triclip, the Pascal T tier system, Edwards, and the Cardioband Tricuspid Anulloplasty system. Edwards, NCT 04634266, will clarify this issue. The authors conclude that one thing is for certain. The forgotten valve has attracted its share of attention. The most appropriate timing of exercise therapy to improve cardiorespiratory fitness, or CRF, 
among patients initiating chemotherapy is not known. In a clinical research contribution entitled Timing of Exercise Therapy When Initiating Adjuvant Chemotherapy for Breast Cancer, a Randomized Trial, Jessica Scott and colleagues from the Vile Cornell Medical College in New York, New York, USA, examined the effects of exercise therapy administered during, following, or both during and following chemotherapy in patients with breast cancer. Using a parallel group randomized trial design, 158 inactive women with breast cancer initiating neoadjuvant chemotherapy were allocated to receive, one-to-one ratio, usual care or one of three exercise regimens. Concurrent, during chemotherapy only, sequential, after chemotherapy only, or both concurrent and sequential, or continuous, N equaling 39 or 40 per group. Exercise consisted of treadmill walking three sessions per week, 20 to 50 minutes at 55% to 100% of peak oxygen consumption, or VO2 peak, for approximately 16 consecutive weeks for concurrent and sequential regimen, or approximately 32 consecutive weeks for continuous regimen. VO2 peak was evaluated at baseline, pre-treatment, immediately post-chemotherapy, and approximately 16 weeks after chemotherapy. In intention to treat analysis, there was no difference in the primary endpoint of VO2 peak change between concurrent exercise and usual care during chemotherapy versus VO2 peak change between sequential exercise and usual care after chemotherapy. In secondary analysis, continuous exercise, approximately equal to twice the duration of the other regimens, was well tolerated and was the only strategy associated with significant improvements in VO2 peak from baseline to post-intervention. 1.74 mg of oxygen per kilogram per minute, P being less than 0.001. The authors conclude that there is no significant difference between CRF improvement between concurrent and sequential exercise therapy relative to usual care in women with primary breast cancer. The promising tolerability and CRF benefit of approximately 32 weeks of continuous exercise therapy warrant further evaluation in larger trials. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Ana Abreu from the Universidade de Lisboa in Portugal. Abreu commends the authors for this excellent study and notes that it generates new questions. What is the best duration for exercise protocols in cancer patients? Is there a difference using different points of onset? Is exercise during chemotherapy needed at all? Could exercise protocols with resistance training added to aerobic exercise be better? What is the timing and duration of exercise to maximize improvements in fitness? Would adherence be maintained in longer or earlier programs? How should exercise adherence be promoted in these patients? Could home programs supported by tele-rehabilitation make a difference? The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In a commentary entitled Revascularization for Left Main Coronary Artery Disease, Fernando Alfonso and colleagues from the Universidad Autonoma in Madrid, Spain, comment on the recent publication 
PCI or cabbage for left main coronary artery disease. The Sweetheart Registry by Jonas Persson from the Karolinska Institutet in Stockholm, Sweden. Persson et al. respond in a separate comment. The authors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.